So Nick, I've noticed in my clinic that for a lot of the women that come and see me, I am their only doctor. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the hardest things about that, Faye, is that it's really hard as an OBGYN just not having been in the primary care sphere for a couple of years now to know where to reach out and look for, like, what do I do to do this screening or that screening? Yeah, exactly. Like, I completely have forgotten when to screen people for, you know, their lipid panel, when to get their A1C, when do they get their colonoscopies. But the good thing is this is all there on the OBG Project. If you head on over to the OBG Project's website, they have a special tab entitled Primary Care that actually has a lot of updates regarding things like treating type 2 diabetes, screening for things like abdominal aortic aneurysm and colonoscopy, lipid therapies, all the stuff that was really, really useful to you once upon a time and you probably forgot, but maybe you need once again. And while I still tell all my patients that they definitely need a primary care doctor and not just an OBGYN, this way at least you're able to kind of hold them over until they do find that PCP. The OBG Project has a product called OBG First that's free for chief residents for one whole year. If you head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you as a chief resident can get access to all of their stuff for absolutely free. But even if you're not a chief resident, check out the OBG Project look at the resources they have on the website, and get better in your clinic. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. Today we have with us Dr. Eva Reyna. Eva is one of our colleagues at Brown Women and Infants as a PGY3, rising PGY4 for next year. Eva, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So Eva, today you're going to talk to us about chronic pelvic pain, which, God bless you, um, is a topic that I often dread. Um, and whenever a patient <laughs> comes into the clinic, I, you know, like really prepare myself before walking into that room. So thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about that. Um, what are our learning objectives for today? That is a great question, Faye. I think many, many, many residents and beyond feel that way. Uh, so one of our goals is to leave not feeling that way, but specifically cultivate a reliable framework for assessing pelvic pain by organ system. Diving a little bit deeper to understand the role of central sensitization within the context of chronic pelvic pain. Developing an understanding of the neurologic connections between organ systems. And we'll spend some time talking about the top-down and bottom-up phenomena. Eva, give us a bit of an introduction to start. You know, the notes that you've compiled to help us out with this episode refer to it as the elephant in the annual exam room, which this totally is. How do we even get started with chronic pelvic pain? It is certainly the elephant in all of our annual exam rooms. With primary care becoming more and more difficult to come by, we often have patients come in who are booked as an annual exam, but as you go through your history and physical, you learn actually they're here for chronic pelvic pain that's been going on for the past eight years. You know, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think we should start with what is chronic pelvic pain? The definition that ACOG uses and that 
many of our colleagues use is six months of pelvic pain or lower abdominal pain. So I feel like when we talk about chronic pelvic pain, I think it's it's more of like um like a symptom and we have to like think about causes and like trying to treat those causes. Can you like talk to us a little bit more about how we can conceptualize or maybe like create a framework for all of these things that can cause pain? Absolutely. So you hit the nail on the head there. Chronic pelvic pain is often so frustrating because we think of it as a, as a diagnosis, right? We think of it as our patients come in, what are they here for? They're here for chronic pelvic pain, just like they might be here for AUB or urinary incontinence. But if we break it down and we think of chronic pelvic pain as a symptom and then develop a framework to understand and uncover what's causing that symptom, uh, we're really in a, a better off place. And so the framework that I like to use is a really silly acronym uh, that I swiped from Dr. Mark Dassel, who currently serves as the director of the Center of Endometriosis, as well as the surgical director of chronic pelvic pain over at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. And that acronym is P-pubs. So let's start off with P-pubs then. What's the first P? The first P is pain. So think of this as your typical locates or whatever acronym you learned in medical school to describe pain. So here you're thinking location, onset, character, aggravating or alleviating factors. This is as simple as can you just describe your pain to me? Exactly, exactly. And that's often a really a really nice way to start. Many patients who have chronic pelvic pain sometimes are worried that they're not going to have enough time to tell their story. And so starting with, can you, can you describe what's been going on? And really sitting there and listening for a couple minutes. This is one of those instances where taking at least two minutes in silence can be very, very, very useful and save you a lot of time in your visit. What about that second P, Eva? What does that stand for? Second P is periods, which you have likely already gone through, especially if you're in your annual exam. So with periods, you you want a thorough menstrual history. Here you're looking for diagnoses like adenomyosis, fibroids, endometriosis. You know, I mean, we all unfortunately are only slotted so much time for our annual visits. If you could only ask one question about this, what would you what would you ask? I would ask, when did your painful period start? One of the most helpful things can be to assess for primary or secondary dysmenorrhea that can give you a lot of hints. How about the U? U is urinary symptoms. So things like frequency, urgency, dysuria, those classic ones? Exactly. Those are a great place to start. And then really diving into the timeline, not only timeline along their lifetime, but timeline in bladder filling. So before your bladder fills, are you feeling pain or pressure with bladder filling that improves with urination? You know, that may be suggestive of interstitial cystitis, painful bladder syndrome, uh, or during with a full bladder, which is also suggestive of IC. You may want to also assess incomplete emptying and the frequency or urgency related to this. Um, and what about the B, Eva? What does that stand for? B is bowels. So would you ask them about like constipation and diarrhea and things like that? Exactly. So constipation, diarrhea, both 
oftentimes with IBS, we see a mixed constipation diarrhea picture. And here we're looking for IBS, IBD, other functional GI disorders. The more patients you see, the more frequently you find that constipation in and of itself rarely acts in isolation. You really, you really want to dig a little bit deeper into the not only the quality of the bowel movement, but pain with bowel movements. So here we're looking at pain with defecation, even in the absence of constipation and diarrhea, which may be suggestive of a dyssynchronous pelvic floor musculature, for example, or even deep infiltrating endometriosis. What about with sort of along this spectrum, Eva, the patient with Crohn's disease or inflammatory bowel disease, I feel like the these can kind of loop into the chronic pelvic pain spectrum as well. These patients, for example, a patient with Crohn's disease, you may be very focused on their diarrhea or their other bowel symptoms. Many, many of these patients have pelvic floor and abdominal wall myalgia. So especially st patient status post-surgery, Crohn's disease is a commonly overlooked trigger for pelvic floor dysfunction. And what about S? S is sexual function, which you've also likely, hopefully, assessed during your annual exam visit. Specifically looking at dyspareunia, if you only have one question, time to ask one question or one question to ask, asking about dyspareunia, asking, is this pain prohibiting a patient from being sexually active altogether, which is a really important differentiating factor. You know, someone may say, oh no, I have no pain, but they have no pain because they're not having sex. You know, in medical school, we learned to ask this, I think, by breaking it down into superficial dyspareunia versus deep dyspareunia. Is that really a useful framework or are there other things we should be thinking about? I think that's a really useful framework. And adding to that, one of the most useful things that I've found is assessing the timing of pain with intercourse. For example, pain before penetration. You would think about fulvodynia, vulvar vestibulitis, even vaginismus. During penetration, you may think about deep infiltrating endometriosis, for example, with uterosacronodule or adenomyosis. One of the ways to ask this is, are some positions less painful than others? And if they say yes or no, think when you do your physical exam, can I reproduce this pain? Is there that one nodule that I feel that uh, when I palpate that nodule, they have a lot of pain. And then you go to after. So the after includes both pain after penetration as well as painful orgasms. And generally that's musculoskeletal spasm of either the pelvic or abdominal form uh, musculature. So I think, you know, now that we've used that framework of P-pubs and we may have some kind of idea as to what portion of the pelvis is causing them pain, what can we do on physical exam to kind of help us figure out a little bit more? You have, in our annual exams, we often jump to our pelvic exam, but taking a little bit of time to think about other, other areas, the abdomen, even the legs is really important. I like to start with the back. I think that before you lay the patient down, looking for paraspinal tenderness, looking for CBA tender, tenderness, um, SI joint tenderness to palpation is all really useful. 
And then I typically lay the patient down and uh, look at leg length. So in order to do this, you have to have them reset their pelvis, which is a uh, sort of funny movement, but you can have them bend their knees, press into the table and just lift their pelvis up and then set it back down and then have them straighten their legs out and look at those medial malleoli and see if there is a leg length discrepancy. We often find that patients with joint hypermobility disorders or even other connective tissue disorders like Marfan's or Ehlers-Danlos are at very high risk of musculoskeletal-related pelvic pain due to ligamental laxity. Yeah, and from here you're moving to an abdominal exam? Exactly, Nick. So on abdominal exam, looking for abdominal scars, does the patient have an ostomy? Just the remainder of your typical general abdominal exam, the one fancy-named test that is helpful to add here is called Carnot's test. And the best way to do this is to have the patient lay flat and have them do a slight sit-up to tense the rectus musculature. Then once they're in that sit-up position, you want to palpate along their rectus musculature for tender points. Um, What about the pelvic exam, Eva? I know like that's kind of what we first jump to, but I feel like the first thing that we always do is, you know, we like do our speculum exam. We, you know, we want to go straight for that pap smear before we do that by manual. Is there anything that we should be doing differently? Yeah. Once we've captured them, we want to get that pap screening in. Absolutely. Uh, I find that starting with a digital exam can be really, really helpful. What you want to do is with that single finger, assess both the levator and obturator musculature, bladder anteriorly. Here you're looking for uterosacral nodularity, just like what we talked about. Can you reproduce their dyspareunia on exam in one spot only? After all of that, then if the patient does tolerate the single digital exam and then moving to the bimanual exam, here you're doing your typical bimanual exam to look for uterine tenderness, bogginess, that you may feel an adenomyosis, adnexal tenderness to palpation or other masses, which you know may even lead you to order imaging right off the bat. Because once, once the speculum is in, it's really, really tough to isolate true musculoskeletal dysfunction from that tender uterosacral nodule or bladder tenderness. Eva, earlier you mentioned in our objectives talking about sort of all of the connections from the rest of the body into chronic pelvic pain. And one that I think is really important to mention are mood symptoms. Mood symptoms play a huge role in pelvic pain and a huge role in coping with pelvic pain. Unfortunately, many patients with pelvic pain hear anxiety and depression and go to, well, you're telling me this is all in my head. But really framing the setting the stage and letting them know that this is really tough and normal reaction to this may be anxiety or depression and cognitive behavioral therapy or sex therapy, for example, can be really helpful to target every aspect of the patient's pain. If we don't target every aspect of the patient's pain, they're not going to get better, which is why it's so frustrating. 
Um, so Eva, you mentioned multifactorial in terms of like the nature of pelvic pain. When people come in and they've had this diagnosis of chronic pelvic pain, they'll be like, well, I've had someone who told me that I have IC. I have another person who told me I have fibromyalgia and someone who's told me I have endometriosis. I mean, really, which is it? Um, <laughs> so what is the cause of all of that? Because, you know, we often see people who have fibromyalgia will get chronic pelvic pain, they may also have IC. Is there is there something that, you know, you can kind of talk about to kind of unite all of these things and make it so that, you know, hopefully all of these patients' providers are going to start talking to each other? <laughs> exactly. It almost seems as though their organ systems are talking with each other, but their providers aren't, doesn't it? Yeah. One of one of the common threads in patients who have multi, already have multiple diagnoses is a phenomenon called central sensitization. It's important to remember that many patients with chronic pelvic pain, like you said, have multiple pain generators and may even be centrally sensitized. So tell me a little bit more about central sensitization. Like do you have a way that you can describe this that maybe we can sort of relate to if it's hard to grasp tangibly? Central sensitization is hard to grasp tangibly. Uh, I like to think about it as volume control. And specifically, I like to think of the spinal cord as a volume control knob. So central sensitization, you can think of it as an amping up or turning up of this volume that leads to a state of constant reactivity. This constant reactivity lowers the threshold for a stimulus to cause pain and then may also even maintain pain after that initial insult has been removed. So what is the cause of all of this, Eva? Like why are patients becoming centrally sensitized and why do they have these, you know, diagnoses that sometimes clump together, the IC, the vulvodynia, the IBS? That's a great question, Faye. There, there are a couple theories. Uh, one of those theories is uh, crosstalk. The two ways I like to think about this are what we mentioned earlier, the top-down and bottom-up phenomenon. So the top-down phenomenon may be that patient you described, the patient who has low back pain, migraines, fibromyalgia, and now she's been referred to your office from her rheumatologist who treats her myalgia for uh, chronic pelvic pain. Conversely, the bottom-up phenomenon may be that 30-year-old patient who has always had painful periods and has, you know, occasional dyspareunia, but when she stopped her OCPs five years ago in order to achieve pregnancy, which she hasn't yet achieved, her um, periods became much worse, her dyspareunia became much worse. And really what she's presenting to today to talk about is her urinary symptoms. She's having pain with bladder filling, urgency and frequency and these are all new things for her. So it almost seems like these organs kind of, like it spreads, so to speak, or they all sort of talk with each other and one thing can lead into another. Think about it this way. Let's go back to our neurology back in medical school. So we have afferent information coming in from all over our body to our central nervous system all the time. In this example, we have afferent information coming in from those major pelvic organs that we talked about, the bladder, the bowels, and the uterus. This information is conducted through the hypogastric, the splanchnic, the pelvic, pudendal nerves, et cetera, et cetera, to 
cell bodies in our thoracolumbar and lumbosacral dorsal root ganglia, right? You never thought you were going to hear dorsal root ganglia again, did you? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And so these signals first go up to the brain, and then an efferent signal comes back down. Now, a really watered-down, simplified version of this efferent signal coming back down may be you reflexively removing your hand from a hot stove once you have that afferent stimulus. Over time, if one doesn't remove that noxious stimulus, the body thinks, gosh, there must be nobody home to hear the fire alarm. I better knock on the neighbor's door. We can't let the house burn down. So what does that mean in terms of um, leading to pelvic pain? So how do these sensory inputs kind of cause all of these symptoms that kind of seem to come together now? So this long-term noxious afferent stimulation that may be coming from an irritated pelvic organ leads to that sensory input traveling from the peripheral nervous system to the central nervous system, right, like we talked about, and then back down to the peripheral nervous system to pass the message along to a nearby pelvic organ that wasn't previously affected. And so you can almost think of this as neurogenic inflammation, so to speak, that's traveling from this central to peripheral pathway. This can even produce functional changes in the organ that hasn't previously received the insult. Uh, For example, in interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome, where we see those functional changes in the glycosaminoglycan layer that we really, really can't explain by any other organic etiology. So we've talked about a lot of these organs as primary pain generators, but I feel like a lot of chronic pelvic pain is musculoskeletal in origin or at least partially in origin. How do the muscles factor into this? That is a great question, Nick. The muscles almost always factor into this is the first answer to that. And it's really helpful to think of muscular spasm as a reactive phenomenon. So if I were to hit you over and over in your arm, your natural response if I came around too frequently would be to duck your head and run, right? At least clench your jaw. Yes, absolutely. And so the same thing goes for your pelvic musculature. And this is a really nice way to explain to patients that, you know, this muscle spasm isn't in their head, but it's just like if you were to have an insult to the musculature in your back, for example. The same, the same goes for your pelvis. And if insulted over and over again, the natural response of these muscles is to protect themselves and tighten and eventually stay in spasm. So I guess then if you don't treat the other things, you're not really going to get to the bottom of the muscle problems. Is that fair to say? Very fair to say. So it's really important that we treat other primary pain generators before we treat the muscles with pelvic floor PT. Because if you don't take away that insult, you're really not going to make much progress in physical therapy. So menstrual suppression for endometriosis, maybe dietary changes for interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome. And making sure that you have adequately addressed these issues before moving towards pelvic floor PT. 
It can be really fr- frustrating to patients and pelvic floor PT is really hard to come by. There's a shortage of well-trained providers, which I'm sure you both have seen in your clinic. Well, Eva, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to talk to us about chronic pelvic pain. I think this is such a important topic that I think we don't always learn very much about even in OBGYN residency. And really, we should be the experts on this topic because that's who the primary care doctors are going to be sending their patients to, right? That's going to be us. If our listeners wanted some more reading or more material, where would they go? Thankfully, ACOG just came out with a practice bulletin back in February, so last month, um, called Chronic Pelvic Pain Fitting. That's Practice Bulletin 218. And that bulletin really goes into great detail about what pelvic pain is, the prevalence of pelvic pain, which is much, much higher than one would think it is, as well as some the evidence behind some treatments that we use. Awesome. Well, Eva, thank you again for coming onto our podcast. Thanks for having me, Faye. Thanks for having me, Nick. Faye, why don't we try and summarize? All right, absolutely. So we first talked about um, exactly what uh, pelvic pain is, and we kind of talked about how pelvic pain is sometimes treated as a diagnosis, but really we should be thinking about it as a symptom. And we talked also about um, the framework that we got from Dr. Mark Dassel at the Cleveland Clinic called the P-Pubs framework. To review P-Pubs quickly, P is for pain. Again, what you typically thought of in medical school is describe your pain and all of those characteristics. The second P is for periods, a thorough menstrual history, particularly focusing in on when did painful periods start and assessing for primary or secondary dysmenorrhea. We then moved on to urinary symptoms, bowel symptoms, and sexual function as the U, the B, and the S. And not only are the symptoms themselves important to note, but the timeline of all of these symptoms can often offer clues into what may be going on. The next step in your annual is going to be your physical exam. So things to focus on would be like your back exam, your leg exam, abdomen, and the pelvis. So in your back, you should be checking for things like SI joint tenderness to palpation, paraspinal tenderness to palpation, and even CVA tenderness. And also um, patients who have some hypermobility disorders may have different leg lengths, and um, these hypermobility disorders may also lead to a risk of um, musculoskeletal-related pelvic pain due to ligamental laxity. The abdominal exam should look for any scars, an ostomy, or potentially even that fancy test, the Carnitz test, where you can um, see if there are any abdominal wall trigger points. And lastly, of course, um, the pelvic exam, where you can start with a single digital finger exam to check for um, the levator and obturator musculature. Often it's hard when you've put in that speculum to then assess for pain because patients will then say, well, everything hurts at this point. Um, And then in terms of uh, other things to look for in your history and physical is to talk about mood because um, a lot of patients may be sensitive to the fact that if we talk to them about having anxiety and depression, that they may think that this is all in their head. But reassuring your patient that that sometimes the normal response to having chronic pelvic pain may be anxiety or depression and making sure that that component is also addressed. 
Finally, we left off with sort of the concepts surrounding central sensitization and crosstalk in the pelvis that can lead to these symptoms seemingly popping up everywhere for patients. Central sensitization, again, is this concept of the spinal cord as a volume control knob, and amping up of volume can lead to a state of constant reactivity, thus lowering the threshold of a stimulus to cause pain and even maintain pain after the initial insult has been removed. Crosstalk can be referenced as the top-down phenomenon, where the patient who initially starts with symptoms towards the top works their way down, or the bottom-up phenomenon, where it goes the other way. Pelvic organ cross-sensitization, though, is often convergence of sensory input from the pelvic viscera. So again, those insults that come afferently move their way up towards the brain and spinal cord. And then if the noxious stimulus isn't removed, the brain's going to go find the neighbor next door to talk about the fire alarm. And so those symptoms can end up in other places, such as other pelvic organs or the musculature. We left off, last of all, speaking about muscular spasm as a reactive phenomenon. So basically, if there is a noxious stimuli, like someone punching you, for example, over and over, you are going to learn um, as kind of a natural response to that to move away or to clench up. And certainly having those muscular spasms in the pelvis could be a response to all of these noxious stimuli. And last of all, we talked about pelvic floor PT and the fact that we really should be addressing a lot of the other primary pain generators before sending patients to pelvic floor PT. One, because If you don't, the pelvic floor PT can be very uncomfortable and therefore make it more difficult for patients to go back. Um, And also, we want to talk about those psychological comorbidities that may have been left untreated that is not going to be addressed by physical therapy. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode or any of our other episodes, go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook or Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or you can head on over to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee, where you can give us some support or love, and in, in return, we'll give you swag or a shout out on the show. For additional reading materials and adjunct learning materials, go ahead and go onto our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Have a correction for this episode or any other episode, or you want to give us an idea for a future episode and hear from Dr. Reina yet again, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>